I think many cities are thinking in a new way about taxis and saying, gee, what can we do to have allow them to better compete with uh, the TNCs? And so uh, I think there's a lot that can be done. Um Welcome to Fast Forward, presented by Commotion, your weekly glimpse into the future of urban mobility. I'm your host, Greg Lindsay, and our guest this week is Hugh Martin, CEO of Lacuna, who's going to be on to talk about what his company has been up to uh, post the mobility data specification of LA and sort of the Open Mobility Foundation, building out for the last few years uh, a sort of open source framework of software for cities. Uh, but before he joins us, I'm joined as always, well, I guess the weeks are waning, winding down now, <laughs> my co-host for this fall season, uh, the Rocky Mountain Institute's Julia Thane de Mordaunt. Welcome back, Julia. We only have two weeks left. Oh my goodness, I know. I know so much, so much as we sprint into the uh, into the holidays. We were complaining beforehand about what used to be a, a slow wind down has during the pandemic become a sprint because, well, because we can now that we all do everything uh, remotely. Um, but that said, let's get into it. Um, I would say, sp- speaking of doing things at home, like unwinding at the end of a long <laughs> pandemic night, a few nights ago, Julia tweeted, what I'd like to do with my Tuesday nights, go line by line through a 73-slide PowerPoint on how the Federal Highway Administration is going to spend its $350 billion allocation from the Infrastructure and Jobs Act. So, Julia, what did you find? <laughs> Greg, what can I say? Omicron, or Omicron, or Omicron, <laughs> as my husband likes to call it, has really uh, pushed us all to new limits. My new limit is spending Tuesday nights looking at uh, different um, USDOT decks about how they're going to be spending the Infrastructure uh, Jobs Investment Act money. And in this case, it was the 73-slide deck from the Federal Highway Administration. Um, I was surprised. You know, I honestly had kind of gone into looking at that slide deck thinking, oh, the $350 billion that they got over the next five years is going to be all spent on highways. And even though the slide deck does indeed say highway provisions, there aren't as many highways as I thought there were going to be. Um, and the uh, money itself is probably about a split between, you know, half highways, half other things. Um, what I was really excited to see is that there's a dozen new programs in that uh, money, mostly focused on resilience and carbon reduction and electric vehicles and reconnecting communities. So there were things that I saw there that, you know, I'd not really ever seen in legislation, like the word micromobility is now in a congressional document. Wow. Um, Vision Zero gets more money. Uh, there's a carbon reduction program that requires that states in consultation with metropolitan planning organizations, create a carbon reduction strategy that they submit to USDOT every four years for approval. Cool. That sounds good. Um, And then there's a congestion program that both uh, penalizes road use and then incentivizes things like carpooling. So I thought, you know, overall, uh, it exceeded my expectations in terms of what was in the detail of the, the dollar amounts. Um, but it did kick the can on some of the things too, like, you know, the highway trust fund is still fueled by gas taxes and it's uh, still only solvent because we're transferring general fund dollars over into the highway trust fund. Um, so I would say, you know, we're talking about progress, but we're not talking about systems level changes or systemic changes, um, in the way that hopefully we will be after passing the build back better act. 
Well, that is fascinating. I'll, I'll make sure to put a link to that deck into the show notes for folks who want to peruse it themselves. And I should, I should <laughs> and before I forget, I should add with with only one episode left after this. If you have any questions, uh, we will also have in the show notes. If you want to ask us any questions, we'll do in our final episode. Uh, you know, we'll try to answer anything you want to email us. So um, I forget, I think, believe it's fast forward at commotionglobal.com. Uh, don't quote me on that one again. I'll just put it in the show notes. But yeah, feel free to send us questions. We'll try to cover them next week. Um, but yes, we can roam through that deck yourself. Uh, I also noted I had a news item that jumped out at me was uh, Laura Bliss writing in City Lab had pointed out on some of the raise grants and sort of how they're being reallocated as well, a lot less road stuff. So it's, it is interesting to see the federal machinery start to perhaps creak a little bit in a different direction. Um, but speaking of gasoline taxes, uh, yes, you know, Omicron, we, I mean, I won't even try to pronounce it or you know, <laughs> delve into whatever twist and turn has happened by the time you listen to this. But it was really interesting to me, Omicron, that you know, the moment it happened, oil prices globally, which had been inching upwards, putting all this pressure on the Biden administration uh, fell immediately $10 a barrel and then, and then fell again. Omani crude collapsed, which was a whole harbinger of what that means for local prices in the Gulf. And, um, and you know, on December 2nd, OPEC plus met and agreed to the Biden administration's plans to open up the taps, which is sort of, you know, re- well, reveals a couple of things. One, you know, this whole notion of America is going to shift to renewables, but, you know, uh, centrist middle-class American politics, you got to have cheap oil, man, or like the people turn on you. Uh, that sort of stands out, as you can see in Biden's approval ratings. And then the other thing I think he points out, and this is, you know, I've quoted Gregor McDonald before, and we've had him on the show. Um, Gregor has pointed out that, like, this is the kind of behavior that we're going to see as we see sort of the wind down from fossil fuels slowly, that there will be periodic peaks and crashes. Um, and that, you know, what it, what it showed to him is that OPEC is sitting on a, a ton of spare production capacity. And, like, the moment anything interrupted that rise in prices, they just collapsed like a souffle. So, <laughs> so it is interesting there. But it is having effects all over the world as well. I would say one item jumped out at me, like, you know, Indian scooters, uh, you know, scooter conversions from uh, petrol over to electric are happening at a clip. Uh, Julie, I've been working on a whole side project uh, with our friends of the Global Partnership for Informal Transport, interviewing experts uh, on informal transportation to help UNDP understand how to under, help understand informal mobility. And uh, yeah, we talked to Cedric Tendong at Three Wheels United about uh, basically the programs he's put in place to help finance electric three-wheelers. And so it's really interesting, like stuff that we've talked about for years is now being massively accelerated by this run-up of oil prices. Um, I don't know. And that and the other item out here, I'll, I'll, then I'll let you jump in here, you know, because we're shifting sort of EVs. It was interesting, the, the new German coalition government, the, the so-called stoplight coalition of, uh, of the Greens, the Social Democrats, and um, I forget, always forget the yellows there. Um, but as part of their grand coalition of, of, of aims that, you know, where you get, you know, expanded gay rights and you get legalized cannabis and you get 400,000 social housing units, <laughs> uh, they also want to put 15 million EVs on the road by mm-hmm. 2030, which means, given the production volumes there, that would effectively be the end of you know internal combustion engine vehicles like you'd ban it by crowding it out so i don't know I, i'm curious your thoughts there again like the all these brave 2030 pledges julia will anyone be buying an internal combustion engine car by 2030 anyway <laughs> uh, probably like in a, the u.s yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, i mean what's interesting about the two stories that you just mentioned um, in terms of in india e-scooters are on the rise and in germany there's a coalition government who wants 15 million electric vehicles vehicles on the road is that you're really seeing a value shift I mean, the rest of the world is going electric, electric bikes, electric scooters, electric mopeds, electric cars. And I guess, you know, my question is, why in the U.S. are we only stuck or why are we stuck with only the car? Um, So I want to point out a couple of things, too, in in India, you know, um, beyond um, just the fact that the cost of an e-scooter is being driven down to about a thousand dollars, which apparently is the same as, um, you know, a diesel scooter. Uh, 
two and three wheelers also account for about um, 80% of the vehicle sales in India. And Bloomberg put out some new stats um, looking at estimates of what proportion of uh, vehicle sales would be e-motorcycles and scooters by 2040. And it was three quarters. So what we're seeing in India and Germany and other places is this real move towards electric mobility that's not just the car, but that's really around the e-bikes, the e-scooters, the e-mopeds, et cetera. Um, and my guess is, and this is a hypothesis I'm testing with you, Greg, but maybe with others as well, is that you know one of the reasons we're seeing um, those sorts of shifts in countries outside the U.S. is because people are not expected to share the e-scooters or e-mopeds or e-motorcycles or whatever else. Those are their own vehicles. Whereas in the U.S., we have a lot more of these uh, shared programs with e-bikes or e-scooters or e-mopeds um, rather than just giving somebody an e-bike or an e-scooter or e-moped. Um, so there was a, another really interesting article in the New York Times, uh, I guess, last week or maybe it was this week, um, that was basically like give an e-bike to everyone. And <laughs> the, the op-ed um, was about you know how much that would cost, but also how much that might shift behavior and the fact that it might be more important important just for somebody to own their own e-whatever um, than it is for them to be able to have access to a shared one. So I think really interesting, um, we're now seeing this movement maybe away from shared, partially towards ownership of low or zero emissions modes of transportation. No, absolutely. I mean, when it comes to your hypothesis about the global south, I think that's very interesting. We won't dwell too long on this, but um, but yeah, one of the things that Cedric said is in particular is like three wheelers are professional vehicles. People have two wheelers, you know, motorcycles and scooters for themselves. But if you're investing in a three wheel vehicle, that's basically you are you know you are a worker, you are carrying people, and so therefore, like you know, there was um, you know very obvious ways to try to make that pencil up for them. So I thought that was interesting, you know, owning that as a professional vehicle. Um, but also, but I totally agree. I mean, there's definitely like a you know, I mean, part of the whole problem we've had with scooter madness is that you know it was a very much a you know not, not my house is how i describe those problems right. like, this, is, this isn't my house i don't care what happens to it and so they would trash it and, and yeah and i think i think a shift towards more personal ownership and personal responsibility would be a big thing and that's that's where i break with like you know the the guys over at micro mobility itself this notion that you know we need to have fleets and massive scalability yeah just buy an e-bike folks like there's good ones <laughs> and, um, and i will i will flag I, will, I have it in there we'll try to find this in the show notes uh, i believe it's ryan johnson who's actually developing cul-de-sac in tempe arizona which is a uh uh, a multifamily, you know, residential development, thousand units, uh, where there won't be any parking on site. There won't be any cars allowed. And he personally owns 50 e-bikes and, uh, and for the holidays Whoa. has written his own e-bike buying guide. Um, so we'll throw <laughs> that in there because yeah, he, he's like the, the Jay Leno of e-bikes, they call him because he's a collector. So, um, so yeah. And his ultimate advice is just buy one. You'll like it. So, you know, I, I agree. We should just give everyone an e-bike for Christmas or you know, whatever holiday you celebrate. Um, well, that's a good one. Well, we'll come back to that one because, you know, uh, I believe uh, you know, Porsche has gotten into the e-bike business. They just actually bought a majority stake in Grape, I think it's pronounced, which is uh, the supercar of, uh, of, electric, of electric bikes uh, made by Remak, which is the whole, you know, now owns Bugatti and whatnot. So there's that. But but speaking of the OEMs, because we need to cover them, it's just sort of interesting. I, I, someday we'll look back on this era of like the big OEM announcements. Like Nissan is the latest. You know, it's it's $18 billion EV push. I think Toyota just made a big announcement of this as well, trying to finally get off their ledge here about, about hybrids and hydrogen. Um, but it's really interesting that Nissan sort of trailing behind after introducing the Leaf under Carlos Ghosn, like now they're finally catching up to this and you know in the other bits of news 
I thought it was interesting, you know, when it comes to software is eating the world, or at least, you know, computing is eating the world, like Ford and GM now trying to get into the chip business, partly, of course, the ongoing supply chain shortages. And while they're trying to get into the chip business to control their supply chain, Apple's getting into the car business. Uh, of course, those news so plans to accelerate that. And um, and yeah, there was an interesting piece in Data Trek that I flagged that I thought was interesting of like basically arguing to just break up GM and Ford, to spin out the entire EV efforts to unlock that value in light of, you know, of Musk and the Tesla value there. So I don't know. Yeah, people are seriously asking questions about whether and this is this comes back to like the, the the gas question the oil question about whether like the book value of the oems is suppressed by the fact that they make cars mm-hmm. using gasoline and that they'd be better off and have higher valuations if they simply ditched the legacy side of their business and became these kind of pure play pure potential ev companies so i don't know it'd be interesting to see if, I mean, it, it sort of reminds me in a way of the of the activist investors calling to break up shell you yeah know? yeah so, yeah I, I was actually just going to point to that which is yeah. I mean, you could view that as enlightened auto OEM leadership, which I'm sure part of it is. I would also say what I'm seeing in my work, you know, what I'm hearing from my colleagues is that investors, the financial industry is putting pressure on auto OEMs and others to change their business model and really feeling it from all directions. Investors want to make sure that financial institutions are making their money in sustainable ways and, you know, putting their money towards um, sustainability and sustainable technology. Um, The, you know, certainly the general public is feeling that the climate crisis is indeed a crisis. And so there's no longer time to um, be able to uh, slowly transition out of legacy businesses, but need to do that uh, very quickly. And so I think you're really seeing um, through all of these announcements that push from financial financial institutions and from investors to change, um, maybe even more so or above and beyond um, what the leadership is, is uh, projecting and what their vision is. No, absolutely. Well, I'd say, well, you know, in addition to the OEMs, moving on to a bit here to, to public transportation. So while this is happening, of course, you know, the, the billions of dollars flowing into this, you know, we still have uh, public transportation is still suffering. And the latest of that one, which really caught my eye, is, is transport for London, which, I, you know, snuck up on me there in terms of the fact that, you know, the, the, the budget crunch, I think it's a billion pounds, uh, was never fully resolved during the pandemic. And, and now they have uh, uh, train drivers are going on strike over the night tube about bringing that back. Um and so, uh, you know, <laughs> my child is broken in. It's taken this promotion <laughs> for that to finally happen here. 20, December 3rd, 2021, for those of you who are keeping keeping tabs. Um, but, you know, but the drivers have gone on strike over the night too, but where they're bringing that back. And it's really interesting because, I mean, I was reading up on what would happen. And, you know, they would shut down entire lines on the tube. Hundreds of bus routes would go offline. And, you know, it would be an epic crisis for TFL. So, so I don't know. I don't, we'll, we'll see how that gets resolved. But, but thoughts are on that one, Julie. I don't know if you'd follow that. I had actually. Um, at one point, I was interviewing for a job at Transport for London. So I, uh, before I took this job at Rocky Mountain Institute, and it was really interesting to learn more about the politics between the UK government and then Transport for London, yes. particularly around yeah how much um, money they were given. Um, uh, essentially, to be bailed out as transit ridership was so far down, and that was a you know point of. Uh, crisis, a point of opportunity also for Transport for London, thinking about how could they leverage new modes of transportation like scooters, and they're doing their own scooter pilot, um, in order to capture ridership uh, because people were no longer doing those long commutes via the tube. So I would say what you're looking at, you know, in terms of Transport for London and crisis is the continuation of that tension between the central government and London leadership. Um, and it's, it seems right now like a game of chicken, you know, who will blink first, um, or will they let, 
uh, TFL, you know, fail for a bit um, in order to resolve some of this political tension. And uh, my heart would be broken if that was the case, because I think, you know, as a practitioner in transportation, a lot of us look at Transport for London as a model for how you bring together all sorts of different modes of transportation and do so in a way that benefits the public, but also leverages public-private partnerships. Um, so uh, that would not be a good moment, I would say, overall for transit globally, because um, one of the strongest transit programs and transit networks um, would show that vulnerability. I know. It's a, I say, when you frame it that way, that is the most like heartbreaking piece. It's like, no, not TFL. Like, yeah, I know. There's nothing sacred <laughs> in this the world. Yeah. yeah, exactly. If TFL can't make it, what, what hope is there for the rest of us? Um, <laughs> well, well, speaking of public transport, you know, the, at the, the flip side of that one is, you know, is, is new Boston Mayor Michelle Wu, who was sworn into office relatively early November 16th, I believe. So she's had a few weeks in there. Um, I forgot to check to follow up on the city council, but she has, of course, advanced ambitious plans to make more and more public transportation in the city free. Um, she's of course, gotten pushback from various people, but there's a handful of bus routes already in place that were already doing pilots that I think she's extended because they had some budget surpluses. So um, it's it's really interesting to see her do that. And I'm be, I'll be curious to see if we get new life breathed into the free transportation movement, if that works. Julie, I'm curious your thoughts on this one, because I am aware, of course, of the counter argument, which free service is not nearly as important mm-hmm. as good frequent service. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and there's a the whole argument that if you do it free, you will basically starve it of funds and you start a downward spiral and yeah. you end up killing the golden goose. Um, yeah. So yeah, so can Michelle Wu do it or to do it to a limited <laughs> extent? I, I hope she does it. Yeah. I mean, I'm in the camp of let's try to make public transport free and let's try to do it without also sacrificing frequent service. I mean, what again I think this points to is a systems level issue and how we fund public transportation. Um, if we indeed think of it as something that is public and something that is a core value of, uh, you know, being in cities, being in the U.S., whatever, um, then we should make it um, as easy to access as possible. And that includes both from an affordability perspective and from a frequency perspective and from an availability perspective. You know, how close are you to public transport? Um, so I'd like to see this happen. I mean, I understand the counter arguments. I've never run a transit agency myself, so maybe I'd feel differently if I had. Um, but in terms of, um, you know, trying to push for uh, novel ideas that move the needle, this seems to me to be one of them. Um, that would be a, a pretty big stake in the ground of saying, um, especially for those folks who are public or transit dependent, um, which we saw, you know, so keenly throughout the pandemic, um, this, you know, could be meaningful for them in terms of uh, uh, making um, uh, it even more affordable, you know, to be able to get around cities. Well, the Wu, the Wu administration has also expressed interest in working with the Open Mobility Foundation, which is going to be a good pivot to our guest, Hugh Martin, here in a moment. Um, but as pointed out by Kevin Webb, uh, who's, of course, head of Shared Streets and, you know, a frequent critic, I will note, uh, a lucid and fierce critic of, uh, of many of these technologies, um, was pointing out that, you know, that Massachusetts in January 2021 actually passed a law uh, for transit privacy, that basically boarding and disembarking uh, public transit in the state of Massachusetts is sort of covered as personal trips. And so therefore, many of the technologies developed uh, for, by LADOT and, and John Ellison Associates and the sort of entities around that would technically not be useful in this case. And that raised some interesting questions. A few weeks ago, uh, back in November, Laura Bliss, again, at City Lab, shout out to Laura for this one, got a mini scooplet um, that Austin, the city of Austin, had withdrawn from the Open Mobility Foundation, um, that it had questions about sort of the various entities involved. And I'll be asking Hugh about those momentarily. Um, but I want to ask uh, uh, Julian this, you know, the, the question here that, you know, that, yeah, that basically privacy, the, the, the transportation trips uh, should be held private. 
and the whole privacy argument in general. Um, I'm curious your thoughts, if you're willing to offer them on how that might play out, because I should note here for our listeners, uh, there's a little bit of, you know, we should have a, a statement here, not quite a conflict of interest, but at least disclosure, uh, that at one point, Julia was part of a team at Siemens that bid to actually build the MDS. I was actually a subcontractor on that bid, I would like to acknowledge. And of course, Julia, <laughs> you worked. Just, just a humble brag there, that Julia picked me. Uh, it was our first collab. It wasn't, yeah. wasn't meant to be that way. Definitely not our last, yeah. But, but also, Julia, of course, you were in the mayor's office as well. So, I, you know, you can you can take a no comment on this if you like. You are the guest host after all. But I'm curious your thoughts on how this will ultimately play out because, of course, there's still, you know, there were lawsuits. I believe Uber dropped its lawsuit. The uh, Electronic Frontier Foundation, the ACLU's was thrown out, but they're trying to appeal. Um, you know, do you think there'll be settled law on this anytime soon? And, and you know, about whether cities have that level of control that they want of having trip-level information in the same way that the private companies do? I mean, Greg, it's, it's just a tough one. And so I'm interested in listening to your conversation with Hugh and uh, seeing what he has to say. Um, my personal opinion is that, you know, government is going to need some data in order to do planning best. We talk a lot about, and, you know, former Mayor Bloomberg was a big proponent of this, um, data-informed, data-driven decisions and being able to use data in order to figure out how to uh first of all, best pe meet people's needs, and second of all, spend government money wisely. So uh, in principle, you know, I'm in favor of having data and some form of data being accessible to government for those reasons, uh, because, you know, ultimately we are trying to, or not we, I'm no longer in government, but ultimately government is, is trying to provide that public benefit. Um, but I do think the devil's in the details in terms of data, and it's uh, very important to be explicit, transparent um, between parties about what's being shared and what's not, and to give people the opportunity to opt out of data sharing as well. Um, so, uh, you know, I probably sit more on the side of LADOT, Salida, Mayor's Office in LA, and what we've publicly expressed is our opinions about both the mobility data specification and just the use of data by government, period. Um, but, you know, uh, I, I think that this is a healthy dialogue to be having, a healthy debate to be having, because uh, what's ultimately at stake is people's privacy and people's well-being. Excellent. Well, I won't ask you to speak for Hugh because we can listen to him for himself. <laughs> so with that, let's throw it over to Hugh. Thanks for joining us, Hugh. Happy to be here. Well, it's great to have you on here, uh, uh, taping the week before Thanksgiving. Uh, it's been nearly two years since we last had you on the podcast when Lacuna was a very new and very mysterious entity. And and, and this vision idea of, of a sort of civic open source software movement was very nascent indeed. So I guess the first question is, how have you been? What has Lacuna been up to? And have you grown faster or more slowly since then? Because it's been interesting to watch the OMF grow from afar, but I don't know how that aligns with your original vision for the company. So, so where are you in your own roadmap? Well, um, I think when we just last started, uh, well, last talked, I'm sorry, uh, it was about one month before we shut the company down and took, sent everybody home <laughs> to work from home. Um, so it's been a wild uh, two years, but uh, we've made uh, a tremendous amount of progress. The, the premise of Lacuna from the very beginning was assuming that there would be a body of open source software that was available to cities freely that they could get from any vendor. Could there be applications that would sit on top of this software that would enable cities to do a better job of managing some of all this new mobility technology that has descended on them? So it, much like uh, in 1990, when um, Linus Torvalds invented Linux and sort of unleashed an entire era of innovation, we think that open source software as an underlying base 
available to everyone will enable all kinds of creative solutions for cities. And that's what we want to do. Well, there is a question. I mean, what, I mean, what have you, I mean, obviously with the pandemic is this major interruption, um, but I mean, what have you built in the last two years or sort of where do you see the most fertile areas? I mean, we've seen as part of, you know, we'll get into the whole, you know, Lacuna as part of the Open Mobility Foundation and and those larger efforts, but like, you know, companies like Cord, for example, have advanced their curb standard as what they think should be the basis of what an open source standard could be. Have you been out there writing standards or, or what's sort of been your approach to it? Well, you know, um, we, we have a, a couple roles. Initially, we had a role as an advisor and consultant to LADOT mm-hmm. in their efforts and their vision around the OMF and MDS and so on and so forth. And now we're a commercial member of the OMF. And so we participate actively in any number of working groups. Uh, what we've been working on um, is delivering, uh, we've been um, under contract to deliver and manage the scooter fleet that LA has. And it's been a huge, huge success. I just, just, uh, I'd like to compare and contrast just for a second. We have LA that has uh, the largest scooter fleet in the world, 55,000 registered vehicles. They have 10 different scooter operators. Uh, They have, they're uh, managing uh, over 500 square miles of property. And, it's been a, a great success. Three one one calls have dropped by over seventy five percent with complaints about scooters, and they they're coexisting uh, quite nicely with the entire city. Contrast that with, say, Miami, who on November eighteenth uh, unilaterally kicked scooters out and said this, this is not working for us. And they, if you look at what the difference is between those two things, one LA was using this new body of open source software with an application to help them manage the scooters. And uh, Miami was uh, trying to use an RFP process to try and manage them very tightly. And so it's just a, a great indicator for what is possible. Interesting. Well, I will, I, I'm curious, you know, have we seen other cities sort of advance? I mean, LA was special in, in its own regard. And like, you know, a lot has been said about the mobility day specification, like Salida taking the lead on that and sort of commissioning her own standard. Have you seen other, any other cities sort of advance that? Or, you know, has there been a sort of um, this this upspring of, of cities wanting to commission their own standards and putting it out RFPs and, and, and that sort of thing? It seems like that's still sort of like the one shining star example. And I'm curious about how you've seen, you know, through the OMF or your own customers, uh, cities start to realize like, these are the kinds of open source standards that we want. And we're going to either commission you to build them for us, or we'll build them ourselves. And you can build applications on top of that. How has that vision come to fruition? Who else is there out? What are the other shining success stories besides LA? Well, uh, there's over 120 cities around the world right now that are using MDS or portions of MDS to help Mm -hmm. them understand what's going on with their scooter fleet. So, uh, and there are over 38 um, public entities that are members of the OMF. So uh, I'm I'm quibbling a little bit with your mention of the word uh, commission a standard. I don't <laughs> think you can sort of commission a standard. I think a standard happens because it delivers value and people appreciate um, what it does. So um, th- this is the only effort that we know of that's not a proprietary developed by a, a commercial entity mm-hmm. Um to 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 put forth something that cities can use. Interesting. Well, well, I guess into I mean going into twenty twenty two. I mean, I, I'm curious to see how you see this movement going forward, or, or or other applications of it. You know, John John Ellis, 
Of course, of John Ellison Associates, wholly owned subsidiary of Lucuda, uh, gave a brief keynote at Commotion LA uh, this month. And it was interesting for him showing, he was showing some use cases about how code parameters change and sort of how to regulate and intervene there. And, and I'm curious, you know, again, about like, what are their, what are their problem set areas? You know, does Lacuna want to move into on this? Because, you know, I'm thinking, for example, of New York that's going to implement congestion pricing, but doing so in a very old school way. Um, the parking, you know, the parking and curb questions come up there, obviously what Cord's trying to do with OMF. So I'm curious, what, what are the problem areas that you think are the most interesting or at least the maybe lowest hanging fruit, easiest to implement, biggest challenges for cities? Uh, what's your focus in the next year? Yeah. So, you know, as I mentioned, we, um, I think, been doing a, a great job with the scooter application. I think up mm-hmm. next, uh, taxis are um, an area where I think many cities are thinking um, uh, in a new way about taxis and saying, gee, what can we do to have allow them to better the next thing. And then um, there are any number of uh, opportunities in new mobility. Like, you know, I think drones and aerial taxis, largely a lot of demonstrations and noise, but eventually we're going to have to figure out how those devices interact with citizens and residents of cities. And I think that's another area that uh, cities are going to need to develop standard methodologies for interacting with those companies to make sure that they get proper outcomes. And then I'd say finally, um, the one area that I think, and you just because you mentioned CORD, that I think is is quite fertile is curb and curb management. I think there's a, a great opportunity for cities to create win-wins where uh, companies that want access to the curb can get access in a way that works for them and cities can find a way to um, not only manage it, but um, get some type of financial re- uh, return for all of that space. The, the, the key premise there that is fundamental uh, and is, uh, I think, the direction the OMF is going is the city owns the curb and they have managed the curb very successfully in the past. And going forward, they should own the APIs that define what the curb is and what it could be used for. So different than a commercial company trying to push something, it'll be the cities and the OMF that drive um, this mapping between curbs from a physical world and curbs in a digital world. Interesting. Well, one thing I would ask, I mean, when you compare what Lacuna is doing to open source or you com- or discuss open source, it strikes me as always striking that Lacuna is, you know, uh, the equivalent of Red Hat. I think we talked about this a bit last time there. But, you know, who is the Linus Torvalds uh, of this metaphor? And, you know, do we need to have cities maintaining through the OMF or other entities like, you know, big public open source code bases? Like, does that function exist? I mean, will cities ultimately have their own programming teams or citizen programmers or build out these standards and then Lacuna's, you know, maintaining that on top of that. I, I, I'm curious about, you know, how do you see the stack evolving there too? And is, is that stack, uh, you know, is it coming into being there? Because, you know, before there were the commercial companies building on top of Linux, there was of course that volunteer programming base that, you know, that Linus, Linus sort of led in his own sort of way. But, um, but yeah, I, I guess that's sort of my question about the metaphor, whether you think that still holds up. Yeah. The, the, the great experiment that's being run here is that, uh, while uh, Linux has been wildly successful, there the the governing board and the primary contributors were all tech companies, mm-hmm. and 
you know, LA's vision was that instead of the tech companies be the governing board, the cities would be the governing board. And that the while tech companies participate and contribute, there would be uh, various uh, mechanisms where uh, the cities can weigh in and say, this is an important direction. So, for instance, the cities developed a privacy principle principles document and made sure that the tech companies who are participating in the OMF and and working on code understood what cities cared about and how they thought about it. So I I think um, so far it it appears to be working. So to your specific question, I think cities may over time develop uh, the capability to contribute to the, as you call it, the tech stack. But I think most of that development is going to be contributions from commercial companies who want a seat at the table. Interesting. Well, I have to ask, you know, there was a recent story this month in, in City Lab by Laura Bliss uh, about the Open Mobility Foundation. It's a, it would be an overstatement to say the OMF is in turmoil, but she did have through, you know, Freedom of Information Act requests, you know, a mini scoop that Austin had quietly withdrawn this summer. And as part of that, there was a cache of emails uh, from City of Austin public officials uh, saying that particularly in the beginning, the relationship between LADOT, John Ellison Associates and Lacuna was unclear and, and, um, and, and their relationship to the OMF as well. And so I, I I guess my question there is, is, you know, do you sort of regret not making that more clear earlier? And, you know, how would you describe the relationship now in terms of, you know, how these things are federated? Because, I mean, obviously they had concerns about it. So I, I'm curious, again, how you sort of see the various players and ensuring um, that what that what happens to the OMF in this is is what doesn't happen to a lot of other tech consortiums, right? Where, you know, the old Microsoft embrace and extend and you would see commercial players come in and try to subvert the standards. And I think people have a lot of fears that this, you know, this could happen. If not with Lacuna, then, you know, a current or future corporate member. Well, you know, um, I, I just, I look at this with a, I probably too much historical perspective. <laughs> Going back to our friend Linus, you know, when Linux first emerged, the concerns and the FUD that were issued by companies like Microsoft were all over the map and and issued very loudly. And so um, the same thing is happening here. If you, I think it's always important to look at what are the who are the displaced or changed business models because something emerges. Mm-hmm. And so one, we've got a, a number of companies who've built proprietary stacks to try and build a commercial business by monetizing data or processing it on behalf of cities. And they think that's the way to go do it. The other one is that you've got an entire set of mobility technology mobility companies with massive assets who have been completely unregulated for the last 10 years. And they're very fearful about what all this could mean to them. And so those are the underlying issues. And then I think there's a fundamental lack of understanding about what's really happening here. This is a transition from a static, from a data perspective, from a static world where data was um, gathered and stored and analyzed and used to try and figure out what we might do about mobility uh, routes in the future into a real-time world where data has come in, processed, and is is uh, ejected quickly, and there's no data stored. You know, as I mentioned earlier, LA is managing 55,000 registered vehicles. The data is processed to give them information, and then it's thrown away. There's no massive trove of information that is analyzed and people take a look at. So, I, I think it's a displaced players who have an agenda. All of them, I think, quite frankly, uh, basically rooted in 
we're a for-profit company that's probably publicly traded, and we need to figure out how to get our labor costs down or how to lower our cost of operations so that we can become more profitable or gain more revenue. And you've got companies who um, have something to lose because they had built a bunch of proprietary technology, and then a lack of understanding about what really is happening. That has all led to all of these discussions, which I think are largely irrelevant um, compared to the phenomenal good that cities now have at their fingertips. Interesting. I, I, I certainly agree with you for the most part. But one question I want to bring up is, of course, the privacy issue of this, which, of course, this gets – we can go in a number of different directions of this because, obviously, the private companies that you mentioned – I mean, I'll invoke Uber, for example, which used its private, private data cash to uh, mess with public regulators through its Grayball program and others. But, uh, but there are, I think, legit – questions raised about, yeah, the limits and scope about public sector data collection, because the difference between Uber and LADOT is that, you know, the LA, that data might end up in the hands of the LAPD. And like, obviously, the state has the power to detain. So one question I have there, I guess, in this, and you know, this is what sort of critics have raised. And this was, of course, the subject of the lawsuit under appeal by the ACLU and EFF, which is, you know, I mean, should there be limits on what on what the public sector data collection could be? And how, and this is the question for you, is how does that change your business or your map for the business if there is, in fact, a public groundswell uh, against the kind of data collection that would be needed to kind of build this public sector business? If they hold the public sector agencies to a higher standard than the private companies, we could argue about the fairness of that. But I guess my question is there is like, does that worry you that, you know, that this might be, uh, you know, choked in the cradle, I guess, or I can't remember the exact metaphor there. Um, but yeah, what, what happens if that, uh, if that comes about? Well, first, the perspective I would give you is that I'm a citizen too, and I mm-hmm. care about my privacy. So, um, I really believe that there will be a uh, a thorough discussion, evaluation, and a journey that all of this goes on. Uh, as I said, even the word collection, collection implies something is uh, given to someone and then they hang on to it. They're collecting it. That's not what happens. So I, I think people's understanding of the technology and what it's capable of, and then also a degree, I, th- I think there should be some oversight to make sure that we actually build things that are privacy protecting. And I think it's completely possible to do it, especially when you're uh, working in a real-time world where all you're trying to do is adjudicate the behavior of vehicles um, and you have no idea who's in them or what they're doing. Um, I, th- I think we can solve those problems. And so I'm. the short answer is I'm not worried at all. Interesting. Well, the last question I want to ask is, because this came up at Commotion LA, partly because I asked it, but folks like, you know, John Ellis and Gabe Klein, you know, mentioned or asked about the metaverse. And of course, again, for listeners, the metaverse is the idea of either virtual reality worlds, which is perhaps less involved with cities or would take people away from cities, but there's also augmented reality worlds. And I think of, you know, Pokemon Go as really sort of the the harbinger of this. Uh, And so here there was a, I know researchers at Purdue University uh, did work examining uh, traffic incidents that they think and could trace back to Pokemon Go, distracted driving, et cetera. And they straight line extrapolated from a handful of Indiana counties. And they estimated that, you know, thousands of people uh, were injured, hundreds of people were killed, billions of dollars in damage from distracted driving incidents from Pokemon Go. What happens when we start to see large corporations start dropping, you know, their own metaverses onto physical reality? I mean, you know, I know John has talked about digital twins and, you know, this notion that cities would build their own virtual replicas. It seems like companies are going to beat them to the punch. And my question is, is like, is this the next growth area for you and other companies to sort of, you know, again, assert control over the public realm before people start having cartoon characters and other sort of augmented reality things chase through it? How, you know, how do, how do we build tools to prevent that from happening? 
Well, I, you know, I take that question and I link it to the previous question about privacy. Uh, if you think about the broadest definition of a metaverse, it's sort of embodied by, say, Facebook. Um, you know, this is a place where transactions occur, you interact, and, and, and Facebook knows everything about what you like, where you go in this theoretical world, which I think is is years away. And so there you have a private company that has massive amounts of data, which, of course, I'm sure they intend to monetize in whatever way that, that they can. And th th that is not something that a city is interested at all. That's not the, the purpose or the drive for cities. As you mentioned, what cities care about is great outcomes for the residents. So are they safe? Do they have great air quality and so on? And so... Um, I think there are plenty of things for cities to work on for the next 10 to 15 years that are actually in the real world, not in somebody's uh, uh, living room, and involve the interactions between the real world and then using digital tools to help um, manage a number of operators that are out there who also, at the, at the end, going back to motive, are looking to generate profits. And so how we balance that is going to be super, super important. And I think cities need to stick to their knitting of managing uh, mobility, doing it in ways that are privacy protective, but also give them the outcomes that they care about for their residents. And that's what they should be doing. And if a, a bunch of tech companies have a vision for how they think they can generate revenue and profits in the future by learning more and more about what every person wants or needs or thinks about, they can go do that. But they're two separate things. Great. Thanks so much for joining us, Hugh. Take care. So, Julia, I'm curious about the, the piece I asked uh, asked you about in the sense of, you know, the whole thing about the metaphor to Linux, right? Linux have this army of citizen hackers, you know, uh, you know, the notion that all bugs are shallow if you have enough eyes on it. And right now, like the whole, you know, open source civic tech stack that was supposed to develop out of the OMF and Lakuta and all these sort of things, I just feel it hasn't gotten as much done in the last two years as I, as I kind of thought and hoped it would in terms of building out what that stack looked like. And so I'm curious, like, what would it take to actually accelerate that movement and start pushing into areas simply beyond, you know, the MD? and curbs and you know those are of course important like there's a whole other realm of problems to tackle and people to mobilize and I, that's sort of what you were trying to do at urban movement labs wasn't it yeah i mean there's two things here greg so i think there's the you know kind of technical architecture underpinning public and private partnership on data sharing and then there is the process um, and the um, uh, policies underpinning public private partnership so what we did at Urban Movement Labs was really tackle that second problem, which is previously between you know, transportation tech companies and government and even the public, there had been tension. And so how can you create a new process, a new way, a third space for those entities to interact that then results in something more productive? Um, and so, you know, kind of we're able to tackle that. In terms of that first challenge, though, in that technical architecture, I mean, I, th I think what you're seeing is that. The private sector, including, you know, I was at Siemens, derives a lot of value and business out of having proprietary systems. So when you open source systems, and especially open source systems for new things, new modalities, new ways of earning money for businesses, uh, it can get pretty hairy pretty, pretty quickly. Um, and so it's a, a question kind of of uh, aligning um, uh, more of those ethical values with the uh, business values in order to uh, push forward um, uh, some of these open source softwares. Uh, and so, you know, I think Open Mobility Foundation has made good progress so far, but it's, it's a tough hill to climb and they're, you know, well-equipped to do it. 
All right. Well, I'm, I would say, Julie, I'm going to miss you as my co-host and your incredibly <laughs> lucid, lengthy, thoughtful responses to this. But we've got one more week of this. So for listeners who have enjoyed this, uh, it's, yeah, it's a treat a treat to have had you on. Well, and we got one more week to go. And again, uh, you know, we'll be throwing some links to what we talked about, of course, in the show notes we're publishing with this. And also, as I mentioned before, please send any questions for next week's hopeful Q&A episode. We'll see if we get any takers. Uh, fast forward at commotionglobal.com. Um, Julia, thanks as always for joining us. Listeners, thank you always for listening and we'll be back next week with the fall season finale until then take care